You don't want to write. You want to be a person who has written. Here's the secret. No one enjoys writing. And I'm not talking about writing, capital W, which includes staring out windows, coming up with ideas, having a book published and out there. There are fun parts to capital W writing. I'm talking about writing, drafting, typey, typey, typey. Okay, some of us enjoy that part. I've met them. They're awesome. I don't understand them, but they're awesome. But most of us, we want to have written. So here is how you go from a person who wants to write to being a person who has written. Write to your strengths. Write in community and have an expert guide around to motivate and teach you what you need to know and only what you need to know. And this is exactly what happens in the Year of Writing Magically workshop. Spaces are available for the 2024 workshop that is 10 months from March to December, where you will be part of a community in which I lead you. I teach you everything you need to know about craft and teach you everything you need to know about discovery, drafting, drawer phase, and revision. I walk you through everything along with a group of people that you will bond with, have an amazing experience with, and I absolutely guarantee you will get more work done on that book than you would have if you had gone it alone. Go to HowStory.Works, click on the Year of Writing Magically workshop. Applications are open until December. All right, now go ahead and listen to the podcast. Welcome to Endless, a Sandman podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm writer, erstwhile DC Comics editor, and ghoulish madwoman, Elisa Quitney. And I'm story expert, hardened by the years, Lonnie Diane Rich. Today on Endless, we're going to be talking about Sandman 29, Thermidor. Thermidor was written by Neil Gaiman, penciled by Stan Walk, inked by Dick Giordano, colored by Danny Vazo, and lettered by Todd Klein. This issue was edited by the invincible Karen Berger, assisted by the well-intentioned Elisa Quitney, <laughs> covered by the inimitable Dave McKean. The myths are dead. The gods are dead. The ghosts and ghouls and phantoms are dead. Time to wake up. Listen, citizens, as I tell the tale of Thermidor, which begins in the month of Mesidor, or as we call it, June, in the year 1794. Morpheus visits a certain Lady Johanna Constantine in her home in Witchcross, England. Five years after he first encountered her, in the Hobgadling issue, Men of Good Fortune, he needs a mortal agent to do what he cannot do himself, as it is a family affair. This little hint should make the little hairs on the back of your arms prickle, careful reader. For this terribly dangerous mission, Morpheus promises to give Lady J what it is in my power to give. A fee she accepts. We jump in time to Thermidor to use the vernacular of the French revolutionaries and find Lady J disguised as a French peasant, strolling the back alleys of Paris with a sack in her hand. Two grubby sans-culottes stop her, hoping to steal a cabbage or a chunk of bread. But our ingenious spy reveals that her sack contains the bodiless head of an aristo swine, and there are plenty of those rolling around that summer. Fooled by the gripping story of aristocratic cruelty, Jeanne, as she calls herself here, delivers. The grubby citizens nevertheless cut the gold earring from the head's cold white ear. It is only when the two depart that Jeanne allows herself a glare that reveals her true feelings. In the boarding house where she is staying, she reveals far more, apologizing to the head and tending it with gentle ministrations, she and the head confer as to the best way to escape from France. We learn the earring will return to the head 
after bringing misery to its temporary owner. Yet, both agree it's unfortunate that the head was spotted. Despite this misfortune, we see that Lady J retains her cocky sense of humor, though the tenderness with which she regards the head is an expression we seldom, if ever, see on her descendant John Constantine's face. But tender or cunning, Jay is taken by the revolutionary guards who storm the boarding house. She is taken and interrogated when a well-dressed citizen named Louis Saint-Just, who is on the powerful committee for public safety, appears to take her to Luxembourg, where political prisoners are kept. Even though Saint-Just has succumbed to Jay's charms, his first loyalty is to Robespierre. He passes Thomas Paine, the author of The Rights of Man, in a cell condemned to die. You have perverted the spirit of revolution, says Payne. Chief pervert and leading member of the Committee of Public Safety, Robespierre, responsible for around 17,000 heads being parted from their bodies, wants the head, which he views as symbolic of the ancien regime, as a puppet show of headless bodies cavort outside her window, Jay sleeps uneasily and dreams herself an audience with Morpheus. At first, Morpheus thinks he can offer no succor, but then his raven Jessamy reminds him that his son can still sing, but he will need a chorus. Robespierre, enlightened by a dream, realizes that the mythic head he seeks has been hidden in a pile of other heads. He leads Jay there, where she reminds him that he was warned. Then she unveils the head of Orpheus, ripped from his living body by the Bacchant, the women of the frenzy. Robespierre, believing that the gods are all dead, asks her to fetch it. Instead, she covers her ears and entreats the head of Orpheus to sing. He sings, and the heads of the executed victims of the revolution open their eyes and join his laments of ideals corrupted and drowned in blood, the voices of the uneasy dead raised in jagged unison. In Jay's words, my ears were covered, but I could not entirely obliterate the sounds the head made as it began its song. Although I possess a modicum of Greek, the mo for the most part the words it used were unfamiliar to me. The head sang first of blood, of the baying senseless cries of the mob, of the anger of women and men, of the worm that devours its own flesh. The ghastly chorus sang, of those who lead and manipulate, of a dream, and of the ending of a dream. Transfixed, Robespierre and his minions stand like statues as Johanna and her charge escape the bloodiest month of the French Revolution. Soon after, Robespierre himself joins the tally of bodiless heads. On the island of Naxos, Jay delivers her charge to the priests. Saved by his father, Orpheus is nevertheless still estranged from him, and while he mourns this, Jay mourns the loss of Orpheus from her life. Orpheus does not want to see her again, but his song lingers in her mind, and there are many in authority to whom she would sing it. And so would I, citizens. So would I. All right. Okay, so Elisa, here we are in yet another short story, a, a one-off um, from Sandman. Thermidor. Um, I, I'm curious what your response is to this, because as I understand, you are entirely responsible for this issue being written. Is that correct? Yes, I will save the <laughs> details of that uh, for Lucien's library. But I will say that I, I had a chance to uh, do some writing with Neil yesterday. Mm -hmm. And uh, and he reminded me of just what I put him through. 
And so it's only <laughs> fitting that uh, it took me a very long time to write the summary of this powerful and dense story. I should say that, as you know, but hopefully our, our readers, our viewers, our listeners, that's what our they're listeners. called. Our listeners <laughs> will not will not uh, be privy to the fact that I, I, I had a desperate call to Maurice, my Belgian frequent uh, artist collaborator, to say, how do I pronounce sans culotte in French? <laughs> <laughs> but you got the pronunciation down under the wire, so we're all good. I don't think so. He kept saying, no, 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 sans culotte. And I just don't think I quite had it. Feel like Emily in Paris. Hey, look, you did your best. That's all anybody can ask you to do. And my favorite thing is that Elisa looks at me and she's like, "How's your French?" And I'm like, "I know nothing. I never took a single day of French class. I've never been to France or anywhere where they speak French. Like, I am terrible with French. So I was no help at all." I I felt a little like Emily in Paris during the Reign of Terror. <laughs> Well, hopefully it wasn't quite that bad. Um, I, you know, honestly, the second I saw uh, Johanna Constantine, I was like, I'm in. Like any story centering Johanna is always going to be my catnip. And it's so much fun seeing her in this. And again, you know, Sandman Morpheus is kind of taking a backseat to everything else that's going on. He's just sort of he's just sort of present as an influence. And I always find that so interesting that the quote unquote central character is kind of rarely centered in these stories. And that to me is interesting, you know, especially because typically like, you know, he's a man, men are the centers of their own stories and all of that kind of stuff. And we see that happen a lot. And yet the Sandman character will step aside and let other people have the stage really frequently. I kind of like that. It's not even his idea that saves the day. It's Jessamy the Raven. Jessamy the Raven. Absolutely. All right. So let's get started talking a little bit about the art in here, because I think that is one of the things that you and I were both taken with in different ways um, in this particular issue. Uh, starting, you know, as we always do with Dave McKean's cover art, which is this hatch mark sketch of Orpheus's head being held by a hand all in black and green, which I find really interesting because most of the issue itself are these warmer colors. But green has this sense of, of sickness and vileness behind it whereas we have this you know like kind of these beautiful bright colors for such a dark time and that contrast is really lovely and I love that little hint of like the sickness underneath that we have in this sketch from Dave McKean. Absolutely corruption decay mm -hmm. uh, which I think all comes through also the the play of light and dark which is thematically appropriate it's also just nice to see Dave McKean drawing you know this is a very mm -hmm. simple uh I mean not not simple but it 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 does show his actual you know drawing ability yeah. um so I also want to talk a little about Stan Walk so um mm -hmm. his I believe okay if I'm wrong somebody tell me I, I I looked him up I couldn't find this my memory is that he was known perhaps a little bit more for his inking uh, mm -hmm. than his penciling. I saw that uh, when I looked it up, his work received a nomination for the 1986 Jack Kirby Award for Best Single Issue uh, for Swamp Thing 43 mm -hmm. with Alan Moore. Um, but what I want to talk about here, so this this issue he penciled, and Dick Giordano, then the vice president of the company, 
inked. So again, I think I've mentioned in the past how amusing it was that this is, you know, still toward the beginning of my tenure as as uh, an assistant editor, mm-hmm. and uh, and the idea that I was editing, so to speak, <laughs> the vice president of DC Comics. Mm-hmm. Dick was a wonderful, you know, very gifted artist and just a wonderful guy. Uh, Stan had some strengths that really stand out for me here. Mm-hmm. His ability to capture nuances of expression and shifts in expression. This is before manga became such an influence mm-hmm. on Western comics, but you see a lot of the success of this comic really, I think, would depend on on Stan's ability to show this shift. You know, we get um, we get Johanna actively acting as a slightly deranged, you know, bloodthirsty peasant woman, and then we get the mask lifting to see her glare. We see expressions of tenderness and vulnerability. Uh, that there's, and then her sort of haughty composure with with uh, the Sandman. I I really love that. I love his details of costume and background. Um, I love the, the the grossness of of some of these characters, where mm-hmm. their 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 personality and their their failings really come come across. Oh, definitely. I thought the art was incredible, but of course, once again, for me, the thing that I was taken by was the lettering. Like, I'm a huge typography nerd. I love fonts. I love lettering. I love everything. I have gone on and on about Todd Klein's uh, lettering of Delirium and and all of that kind of you know ebb and flow to the way Delirium speaks. Um, and here we have this um, Johanna Constantine's journals which were um, lettered in her hand. And even to the point where we have the detail of the letters becoming more intense after every dip in the ink, the quill in the ink from the time. And I just thought that was so, such a beautiful little detail and writing in that hand. Um, And it is a form of like lettering is something I'm not sure. Like, I don't know a lot about comics. I don't know if people tend to make a big deal out of the lettering the way that I do, but it is such an incredibly expressive opportunity in within the art that the lettering itself is also art. And I absolutely love that. Uh, absolutely. And of course, in Jewish and Islamic traditions, where there's an injunction against portraying uh, humans or, or sometimes even animals, you really get calligraphy raised to a high, mm-hmm. high art form. It's probably in other traditions as well that I'm just not as familiar with. I want to say one funny Neil thing. So Mm -hmm. I was, as I said, most of the time I was just in another room, you know, hiding Neil's phone so that he would write. (laughs) Um, But I did get a chance to say, Thermidor, give me Thermidor Mm -hmm. things. And he said, well, you know, people can't read cursive or as the British say, joined up handwriting anymore, <laughs> let alone scratchy, splotchy, I'm in a prison in, in you know, writing with a quill handwriting. Mm-hmm. And so that for a lot of people, they just have no idea what Lady J's 
uh, journals are saying. And that was that was why in my summary, I did the summary, this this uh, mm-hmm. issue, I included a chunk of words that were directly taken from the journal. So just in case uh, you are of the generation that was never taught cursive, <laughs> you know, you can... Um, you know, you, you you can get a flavor for it. I would like to say, I mean, I wouldn't have known how to read cursive if my mom hadn't taught me because mm-hmm. I remember a teacher had said to her, oh, everything will be typewritten in the future. Uh, <laughs> man, am so I you, old. you didn't learn cursive in school. I did not learn it in school. I learned it from my mom. And now I would like to say to any listener who is over the age of 40, now we have a way to hide things from the younger generation. All we oh, have to do absolutely. is write it in script. <laughs> I had no idea that. Th- I mean, I knew that my kids didn't learn it, but that it's unreadable, like didn't occur to me. But I guess that would be the natural consequence of not learning how to write it is you wouldn't know how to read it. So, uh, yeah, that is really interesting. I like that. Um, OK, so let me talk a little bit about Johanna Constantine. Because honestly, one of like I love a lot in Sandman, but Johanna Constantine is at the top of my list. Like I love, she is so goddamn mercenary. Yeah, you want me to do a favor for you, Morpheus of the Endless? <laughs> what are you gonna give me? Land, money, and then dreams all bitch. I'm skint, you know. <laughs> but as soon as he says. I will give you what is in my power to give you. Like, you know, we don't have like live reactions, of course, on a comic book page, but I could feel her heart race and her eyebrows go up at the just mention of his power, right? What is in his power to give me? You know, I love all of that. And I cannot freaking remember uh, what she gets paid. So I'll have to work that out. We'll find out. I. I, I can only feel a little bit better because I was asking Neil some details about what he knew and when in the series. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, <laughs> that that 15 years ago, he said, let's do the annotated Sandman now while I still remember a thing. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's that's uh, in my in my defense. I wanted to say that one of the things that I mentioned to Neil is I I wish we could have a grizzled, older, Helen Mirren-esque Lady J, the same way we have a more grizzled John. And Neil reminded me that when we first meet John Constantine in the pages of Swamp Thing, he's still, you know, young and cocky. He he becomes grizzled. So I I want to invite the world to fanfic an older (laughs) Lady J for me. Oh, my God. Absolutely. I would be so into that. That's a TV series just needing to happen. Absolutely. (laughs) I also love that she is writing in her journal, right? And journals usually tend to be like personal things, but is anticipating readers like she knows she's going to sell this shit for money. Everything is for money. I love Johanna Constantine. I also love this this one line that she has. And for those of you who can't read cursive, you missed out on something beautiful. Uh, Men have a fund of gullibility. (laughs) And she goes on to talk about how she exploits that fund uh, whenever she needs to get out of a jam. And it's just so incredible. She is so beautifully characterized, and I absolutely adore it. Um, and the thing here, too, is that we have these two months between her escape from France and her arrival in Naxos to deliver Orpheus. And I'm just like, what did they talk about? Two months on a ship, just her in a head. Like, what 
conversations did they have? Like, what happened during that time? I kind of want that story, too. Oh, good point. Because, I mean, one of the things that is so wonderfully enriching of this tale is Mm -hmm. the emotional connection which Johanna clearly feels for Orpheus. So this started out as a mission that she took for gain, but clearly she has feelings for Orpheus, even though, you know, Mm -hmm. he is just ahead. And it's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like those dating experts say, you know, there's some, there's someone for everyone. And clearly (laughs) Orpheus's head is it for Lady J. I absolutely love that. Although I have to say, like, something happened to me some years ago. I was never a particularly neat person, but I got very neat all of a sudden. Like, I had to make my bed every morning. I had to keep everything kind of neat and clean. And so as I see her walking around with this severed head, just with the, you know, esophagus and everything just, like, hanging out the bottom, I'm like, how in the world did she keep that clean? Like, that just has got to be picking up dirt, rocks, and nonsense all over the place. Like, how do you keep that clean? Um, And the fact that I even had that thought was very disappointing. Because here is, you know, Johanna Constantine carrying around a head. Stop thinking about the stupid shit. (laughs) Um, I think you're supposed to think of some of that. I think that that is Mm -hmm. the... um, Some of the success of Stan Walk's art here is that he captures emotion, but also historical detail and grossness. And I, you know me, you know, authentic emotion, humor and body horror. So this this really is up there as an issue that I, it's it's very much so. (laughs) And once again, here we are living the historical tourism life with Neil, right? Um, I had no idea that they had changed the months and uh, started a new calendar in revolutionary France. So that was a wonderful new thing for me, because as soon as I saw the month of Thermidor, I was like, well, I got to find out more about this. So off I go to Wikipedia, which, of course, like was not accessible to Neil or anybody at this time, you know, Um, and all of the details that he had researched that he had like folded into this, I thought was really neat. Um, You know, I I love the quick fall of Saint-Jean and Robespierre having a mythological explanation. Um, That is really fun. Um, The presence of Thomas Paine just sitting there ready to have a philosophical argument, you know, in his cell. Um, That was very cool. Um, And between like the last issues, historical tourism, um, you know, the the actual, you know, historical source for the sleeping sickness or um, encephalitis lethargica, which of course happened in the early 20th century, Um, you know, having that that um, history there for uh, to explain dream and what happened to dream and all of that. Like, I love this kind of melding mythology into history. Um, which is kind of how mythology became a thing was it was our only way to tell the stories that, you know, we wanted to tell um, and that we needed to tell. So um, the independent short stories, like the little short stories that come up every now and again um, within this world, I am really enjoying. I love that historical tourism. I I do too. And it's, there is something about their self-containedness that makes them in some ways even larger. You know, there are mm-hmm. big, big worlds contained in these little packages. 
Oh, absolutely. Like some of the stories that I remember most vividly, like clearly Calliope is one of the stories that will never leave my head ever again. You know, um, all of these like little one off stories that expand the world, but that bring it closer. Like this is a fantastical world with these endless, you know, and yet melding in our real history um, with their stories brings it so much closer to it's like a sense of of relevance to the life that I live every day. Like it is such a cool thing. Oh, so I just wanted to point out you brought up Calliope. If you look back in Calliope in that issue, that is where we learn uh, from the 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 three that uh, that Calliope bore Morpheus's cub. Mm-hmm. So we we can actually know who is the mom. Who is the mom? Yes, absolutely. And then at the end, you know, when Orpheus is sitting there just ahead being like, you know, I'd like to see my mom. I'd like to see my dad. Um, there's something in that that is just so like so heartbreaking and sad, you know, that like he's he's just right. Just ahead being carried around by a servant and he just wants to see his mom and dad. And the idea that when he's asking, you know, does this mean my dad cares about me? Does this mean like, you know, working through all those daddy issues? I'm like, all right, go for it. Get that therapy, man. <laughs> and and again, as someone who is now, you know, so much older than I was when this came out. I don't think I thought about how young Orpheus must have been when all this happened to him. But yeah. uh, we will, you know, we will get more of his story. But I think, you know, this is this is someone who made some, you know, at least strategic errors in his life. And and he would have done so really in his, I don't know, teens or 20s. So he's a young yeah. man. I mean, and he's not a young man at this point. He's he's very, very old. <laughs> right, exactly. It's kind of like the the concept of age when you are endless, um, I think, sort of loses some of its meaning because it's there's so many lessons yes. to be learned at every stage. Or know, bodiless. There's so many things. Yes. <laughs> endless or bodiless. Endless or bodiless. Um, it was also really fun to get to see a glimpse of Jessamy. Of course, Jessamy is the raven that died um, in the beginning of our story, you know, trying to free Morpheus from his little glass prison. And um, and there's something really beautiful about Jessamy coming in with the idea that saves the day. I absolutely love that. The wisdom of the ravens is one of my favorite things uh, in, in, you know, the Sandman universe. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm now I'm plotting to talk a little about the the research and the pre-internet days. So is it? Uh, yeah, I'm almost for. We is there some Lucy special music for like? Can we? Can we like? It needs like. Uh, yeah, we don't. We don't have special music now. But the wonderful thing is that as I edit, yes. right, I can go and find it and actually put it in. So I will go. I will grab some music. To, to like shift us into Lucien's library and we will have Lucien's library theme. So I will grab that and we will have that right now. Okay, so I think the time has come for me to talk about why Neil blames me for this issue of The Sandman. Oh yes, I want to hear that story. <laughs> so one of my tasks as a a young assistant editor 
was I had to write the next issue box. And I took this responsibility very seriously. Mm-hmm. My mom used to say to me, whenever someone has but a small amount of power, they wield it with great ferocity. And this was one of my <laughs> few bits I was told this is what I had to do. And so I, mm-hmm. I had to do it. So uh, this would have been, let's see, the issue actually came out around end of June of 1991, I would have, I think, still been on honeymoon. So this was being created a few months before. Mm -hmm. And I was just getting comfortable with my job, but I was still very new at it. Anyway, I said, okay, Neil, I'm getting ready to do the letter column. I need to write the next issue box. What happens in the next issue? Mm -hmm. And Neil said, (laughs) Wouldn't it be enough to say, another issue of The Sandman is coming, it's going to be great. And I said, (laughs) no, that would not be enough. And he, you know, humphed. And I just want to say that Neil is not the sort of person to say, I have no idea what comes next. So instead, (laughs) you know, and he did have an idea, but he said, oh, fine, you know, it's going to be the French Revolution. And I I can't, I have to look and find my my next issue box. I think I may have mentioned Lady Johanna Constantine as well. (laughs) And then, uh, as I believe, Neil said, oh, shit, now I have to go and research. And of Mm -hmm. all the issues, he said there was a ton to be researched. And he had at best two weeks to do it in. So gather round, children. Let me explain the world as it used to be. I want you to imagine. Come, are you sitting comfortably? Good. And those of you who are older, I want you to cast your minds back to the before times. I'm not talking about before the pandemic. I'm talking about before Google. So this is, this is what the world was like, okay? If you wanted to write a story about the French Revolution, you would need to look in your bookshelf first and see if you had any books on the French Revolution. Most of us don't. Maybe Neil did. Otherwise, you would go to the library. And if you just have a small, he was in um, a small town in uh, around East Sussex, I believe at the time. Mm-hmm. So if you didn't have a great library, you'd have to request a book to be transferred or go to a larger branch of the library and look through the shelves and see, of course, what, you know, was available, what they listed is there, but someone hadn't returned it in 1957. <laughs> you could go to a bookstore as well and look for mm-hmm. these things. But it was it was a very different experience. And you mm-hmm. couldn't just look up, oh, Robespierre. Let's see. Let me just Google quotes of Robespierre. You would have to, <laughs> you know, you could go to your encyclopedia. Uh, mm-hmm. So I I did ask Neil what books he used, and he remembered two. So one it was maybe even a Time Life kind of book with a lot of great illustrations. Mm-hmm. Time Life used to, you know, I, I had a whole library of Time Time Life. Oh, I remember those. Early Man, Time Life, <laughs> The Vikings, you know, and you would have all these <laughs> I pictures. Those. Of, yes, mm-hmm. I loved those. Um, those were great. The other book was by the British Jewish author Simon Shama. Um, he's also written a wonderful, you know, histories of Britain, history of the Jews. Um, and he's a really, I think, did I did I put in the quote here? I put in a Simon Shama quote. You do, and it's absolutely wonderful. It's just a little bit down in the script. 
<laughs> Historians are left forever chasing shadows, painfully aware of their inability ever to reconstruct a dead world in its completeness, however thorough or revealing their documentation. We are doomed to be forever hailing someone who has just gone around the corner and out of earshot. So that's actually from his book, Dead Certainties, Unwarranted Speculations. I've read a bunch of Simon Shama, uh, mm -hmm. but I did, of course, Google that shit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love Simon Shama. He honestly is my favorite historian. Yeah. So um, so that was the other book that he used. Um, I asked Neil when he first knew that he had wanted at some point to write about Orpheus and the French Revolution. And he said, certainly since, you know, Calliope, if not mm -hmm. before. The book he used, it's probably in my shelves here because I, I still have a lot of Neil's mythology books um, from the time when I was helping with uh, Norse mythology, which mm -hmm. prior to that was supposed to be more of a, a world mythology book. So it's, I believe, Lampriere's mythology. Uh, mm -hmm. And he looked that up, Calliope. Uh, he saw I had a son with Apollo. And Neil decided that Apollo gets confused with Morpheus, just like the idea oh. that that was a mistake. <laughs> so Louis Saint-Just, mm -hmm. uh, just, oh God, God, I'm really sorry, guys, uh, took a very tiny bit of French. You would think working with Alain so much, Moise, would give me some better French. I, I keep meaning to study French, but life goes mm -hmm. by very quickly. Anyway, Saint-Just was, was He's the guy who has slept with uh, Lady J and sort of yeah. saves her, but not not really. He did have some good things about him. He, he thought property must be protected by the state, but to secure universal independence, all citizens, including women, must own property. He thought that government should be composed of the most educated members of society who could be expected to share an understanding of the larger social good. This is, I would like to say, not the system we appear to have in place at the moment. <laughs> right. <laughs> so the last thing I wanted to say was I asked Neil whether looking at this comic now, 30-some years later, he has any different takes on it. Yeah. And what he said was at the time, and I hope I'm getting this right, that, you know, he was very influenced by the novel The Scarlet Pimpernel. Ah, mm -hmm. and, you know, uh, talking about obviously the depredations and the awful excesses of the French Revolution and mm -hmm. the Scarlet Pimpernel is a disguised uh, aristo who's, who's saving people and ferrying them to safety in, in England. But that now he looks back and feels more sympathy for the revolutionaries. They There were people who were starving. There had been, mm -hmm. uh, a, I think, a drought and a famine. Uh, people could not eat, They'd, and they were being heavily taxed. While the uh, wealthy, and this may mm -hmm. this may surprise people, that <laughs> people were upset that the wealthy were not being taxed at all proportionally. The the poor mm -hmm. were bearing the brunt of the taxation. Now, you might think that the wealth would simply have trickled down. I'm sorry right. if I'm getting too political. There are people who have made that suggestion before. And for some reason, I don't know, that's never really worked, despite how much sense it makes. It's so much, you know, you just let the wealthy get wealthier and wealthier and wealthier and the poor will benefit. But uh, mm -hmm. they did not see it that way because they were starving. Mm -hmm. And um, so Neil did say that he, he thought there, there was it, it was more understandable to him now. 
Um, wow, yeah. this is this is the most prickly and political we've been. Um, or I probably- oh, I'll go. I'll go right with you. <laughs> And I, yeah. I, I do want to say, I, this isn't in my notes, um, I am not at all a fan of beheading. No, not at all. Mm-hmm. But I will say, just, I mean, I, I remember a great old horror comic about Monsieur mm-hmm. Guillotine, who gave his name to his invention. So in the old days, people were hanged as a mm-hmm. form of execution. And it was not... Uh, either people were bad in math, just like me, and they didn't calculate the weight and the rope and all of that. There were many ways it could mm-hmm. go wrong. And so the um, the person who gave his name to the guillotine mm-hmm. wanted a more humane, painless way. Also, yeah. chopping off people's heads with an axe uh, requires, you know, I guess, mad good knife skills. And yeah, yeah. It, it was, and sometimes it's it's not so great. Sometimes if you don't have somebody, I mean, like every now and again, right, we go somewhere and somebody is not really great at their job. And that's okay because their job isn't killing people. I would be really, yes, I would be terrible. Mm -hmm. Every time I try to cut an onion, everyone starts shrieking and hiding their eyes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's, uh, you know, it's tough. And the thing is, is that like we see, you know, history doesn't repeat, but it certainly rhymes. You know, um, and so you see this kind of pattern happening over and over and over again, where we end up with a, a oligarchy at some point, and um, and it's all the billionaires getting together and let them eat cake and whatever. Which, by the way, Marie Antoinette never actually said. So we'll just let that go. Um, but that's one of the mythologies of the time, you know, yes. and like and and. So revolutions happen and tyrants, you know, step into these spaces, these these, you know, um, like gaps in in power. And then, you know, violent swings occur in situations like that. Like England had the revolution. They killed Charles. I think it was Charles II. Um, You see these things happen over and over and over again. Um, And I think that like in our current cycle, I'm really hoping that there won't be beheadings. But I would be perfectly happy to see a handful of people in orange jumpsuits. Like that would that would feel good to me. That would feel just not to, you know, use a, a word we've got here, but yeah. <laughs> so speaking of clothing, I two last mm-hmm. things I keep thinking of, because this is what happens when you do a lot of research. Yeah. So I can't remember the uh, the word, tricot, the, the, it's the women, the old women who knit, knit, knit by the guillotine uh, oh, yeah. that are referenced. So they're, they're, that is a wonderful thing to look up, um, all of the uh, exciting, <laughs> bloody, mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm I'm not meaning to make light of this, but there there were there there were a lot of depraved things going on during the French Revolution. But one of the rabbit holes I started to fall down um, mm-hmm. is I started to look up the changes in fashions. I wanted to see what how accurate Stanwalk's costuming was, mm-hmm. and uh, besides thinking, oh, maybe I want to be a lady who had a Constantine with a head for Halloween, um, <laughs> I uh, I began to realize how much the costuming reflected the, you know, the, the, the radical changes that were happening in society. The Washington mm-hmm. Post has a fashion writer who is so subversive and weird and interesting. God, I follow her and I'm, I'm trying to remember. It's Rachel Tahijian. Do you know who I'm talking about? I am not familiar. Oh, God, wait, I'm going to look her up on the increasingly awful X. 
Um, oh God! What is going on with that? It's uh, Rachel. Okay, Rachel Tajian Wise. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's at the Prophet Pizza. She writes about fashion in a way that really shows you cultural reverberations through clothing choices. So I I started to look at all of the changes from uh the, the 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 rapid changes in especially women's but also men's wardrobes during this period of bloody upheaval mm-hmm. found it really fascinating uh the 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 thing that i keep um butchering sans culotte is obviously <laughs> a reference to the the changed fashion mm-hmm. um oh shoot i have one more thing i'm sorry i'm babbling on so much no can, no no keep say- going lucian's library is the best part go <laughs> oh god okay so i looked up thomas paine because yes. it's been a long time and i found again i think this was through either uh history channel or wikipedia that that the the orator, orator robert g ingersoll had written about him on the 8th of june 1809 death came death almost his only friend At his funeral, no pomp, no pageantry, no civic procession, no military display. In a carriage, a woman and her son who had lived on the bounty of the dead. And then you had a Quaker and two uh, uh, black freed people. Mm -hmm. uh, I think freed men. They were the only people who were the funeral cortege of of Thomas Paine. So he he got saved and then his fortunes kind of went up and down. But I thought... Listening to that description, I can't help but imagine death, our our endless death coming yes. for Thomas Paine and giving him some comfort. That is really nice. Death is awesome. I mean, really, like very, very cool. I, you know, th- they need to have, do they have Sandman tarot cards? I need a deck, I think, if they have Sandman tarot cards. I, I think they, yes, yes, they do. Um, And I must have had them at one point. I don't know. You move house a lot. You lose yeah. everything. But I think... Mm-hmm. Uh, Dave McKean, I think, designed them. Oh, interesting. I'm going to have to look them up. I'm going to have to look them up. <laughs> I have a Buffy set of tarot cards. I feel like I need a set of tarot cards from every everything that I review. It would be really wonderful. Um, all right. So here we are. We're getting to my favorite part of, well, I guess my favorite part is Lucian. My second favorite part of our show is our favorite parts of the story. So what is your favorite page, your favorite artwork from this issue? Oh, gosh. Um, I think... In, in some way, the chorus of heads, which mm-hmm. is, I mean, there's so many great expressions, but you have such different, interesting expressions on all these heads that mm-hmm. makes you realize every head is a story. Every head is a story. <laughs> I love the page where the soldiers come for Johanna. We have this like circle panel at the top and then it just descends down into hell and to where the captain threatens her at the bottom. And I absolutely love the kineticism of that art and the way that that moves. It's just it's so incredibly wonderful how these, you know, stationary 2D, you know, art pieces can come together and become something that has movement and and force. I absolutely love that. All right. So what's your favorite part of the story? Um, Gosh, you know, I think there, there are a few different moments, but there are moments where we really see how 
Johanna feels about Orpheus. And that sort mm-hmm. of that surprising revelation where she's there are two revelations at the boarding house. One that, you know, it's a talking head. And <laughs> the other is that Johanna cares for him. Mm-hmm. I love yeah. that. What That's about really you, nice. Lani? All tyrants must topple, right? I mean, when Orpheus sings and brings about the fall of Saint Just and Robespierre, it it feels like justice, and uh, justice is a is a thing that we would like to see happen, even though not necessarily in a violent and bloody way, but in like an orange jumpsuit way. Like I kind of like that. So uh, so yeah, I, I I enjoyed that a lot. <laughs> If you've enjoyed this discussion and would like to join in, Patreon supporters can chat with us and each other through our Patreon Discord channel. To find out how you can support Chipperish Media, visit patreon.com slash chipperish. Other ways to show your support, write a great review on Apple Podcasts, tell your friends about the show, or visit Morpheus to discuss the matter of your fee. Thanks so much for joining us. We will be back next time with Augustus, Issue 30, and the second title of the Distant Mirrors Story Collection. Until then, they do say that two heads are better than one. We jump in time to Thermidor to use the vernacular of the French revolutionaries and find Lady J disguised as a French peasant, strolling the back alleys of Paris with a sack in her hand. Two grubby sans-culottes. Wait, is it... How's your French, Lonnie? I'm sorry. I'm just My gonna, French is terrible. Is it, I don't have any is French. Is it sans or sans-culottes? I think it's sans, but I really don't know. But it's okay. All right. I'm just going to do that again. Mm -hmm. Tender or cunning... Jay is taken by the revolutionary guards who storm the boarding house. She is taken and interrogated when a well-dressed citizen named Louis Saint-Just... Wait, Ju? Ju? Oh, God. I don't know. <laughs> How do I say just in French? I, I, have, I have no idea. I mean... Oh, just, just, just... I'm sorry. This is terrible. Oh, why did I drop out of French, just in French... <laughs> 
pronounce is it Jean? I hope it is. Uh, Just. No, that's not helpful. <sighs> ah, fuck it. Hey Siri, how do you pronounce Saint Just in French? Oh, Siri's not listening because I'm recording. <laughs> okay, hang on. Just one second. Just, just try this. I, I just feel like I'll be so embarrassed. I should have done this before. Alan, Alan. <laughs> just one second. Come on, Alan, answer the phone. Can you hear me? Yes, Alan, this is an emergency. I'm doing the Sandman podcast. How do you pronounce Saint J-U-S-T in French? Which one? Saint? Saint Saint-Just? Just? Ah, Saint-Juste. Juste. Saint-Juste. And how do I pronounce Saint-Culotte? Yeah, Saint-Culotte. La Sainte-Culotte. Say again? So it's Saint... No, no. It's 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 like the 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 S A N S culotte. S A N S. Oh, sans culotte. Sans culotte. All right. Culotte. 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 Sans culotte. Sans culotte. Oh. Oh my God. Sans juste. All right. I'll do my best. Thank you. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye. Thank you. Okay, I'm writing down. <laughs> Should I do sans culotte again or that's good enough? I think it's fine, but it's up to you. No, this is fucking take forever.